0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: Jesus is the only one in history that's ever helped the poor, truly. And you can talk to millions of, of poor people in the world today who believe in Jesus, and they will tell you that, yes, well, I'm poor from a material standpoint, but they will also tell you about the riches that they enjoy in Christ. And you can find that all around the world because Jesus is the champion of the poor.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Isaiah chapter 41 through chapter 42, verse 9.
1: Now here's Pastor Brian. Some people will look at this and say, this is so foolish, this is so ridiculous. Of course, we would never do anything like that. But we do have idols just like other cultures do. They're, they're just, they're different. The idols, they might not be in some shrine somewhere unless you want to call your dock where your yacht is parked. Uh, um, that's that's the, the shrine area or your Ferrari or, or whatever it might be. The point is materialism is an idol today. Many, many things are idols today. The ancient idols... The image itself had a concept that was connected to it. So the image was just a means of worshiping the idea. So we've sort of, in some ways, done away with the image, but we still have the idea. So we still worship the idea. We still idolize material things. We idolize wealth. We idolize prosperity. We idolize our own personal comfort and those kinds of things. Idolizing, meaning this is the top priority of our lives and we live for it. So, but the thing that God points out all the way through in dealing with these idols is the fact that they really can't do anything for you. They don't bring you prosperity. They can't sustain your prosperity. And when your prosperity runs out, they can't help you. And, you know, once again, we're, we're seeing this reality become obvious right, right before our eyes. Because now faced with something that we can't just fix, All of our money can't fix it. All of our technology can't fix it. All of our brilliance can't fix it. All of the things that we normally have our confidence in, we have our hope in, we have our our trust in, these are our idols today. But we see when things really get desperate, just like in the ancient days, these, these idols could do nothing. When Cyrus came and conquered Babylon, which was the idol factory of the ancient world, the idols did nothing absolutely nothing. Cyrus came in, conquered them, and uh, the idols were of no help. And, and so it is today, those things that we worship, those things that we live for, they, they might uh, benefit us at a, at a certain time under certain circumstances, but when the real difficult things come in life, they're of no value. And so this is where the Lord is constantly contrasting himself with them. But as we go on in verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, going back now to prophesying Cyrus again. And so he will come from the rising of the sun. He shall call on my name. Now, Cyrus was not a believer in the the truest sense of the word, but he honored the Lord. And it would have been Cyrus who allowed the Jews to go back and to rebuild the temple and provided for them to be able to do that. And so he honored the Lord in that sense. And even from history independent of the Bible, we know that that was the demeanor of Cyrus in regard to the various gods of the nations, but specifically and particularly toward the Lord God of Israel. And so he shall come against princes as though mortar As the potter treads clay, who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. So Cyrus is gonna come, he's gonna deal with Babylon, the people are gonna be delivered from the captivity, and Jerusalem is going to be restored. And so I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings, for I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed they are worthless, their works are nothing, their molded images are wind and confusion. So when God is talking about the work that he's doing and he's basically saying that there's no person that is able to do what is God alone can do and what God alone will do. And so now we come to chapter 42. And in chapter 42 We are introduced now. And again, here's the contrast. I looked and there was no one, God says. But now he says, behold my servant. So here we are introduced to the servant of the Lord. And these servant passages, these are the messianic passages of Isaiah. As I said early on in the study, Isaiah is the prophet of the Messiah. And so here is a messianic prophecy. In other words, it's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. Now, again, he's referred to in these chapters 40, here in uh, chapter 42 on through chapter 53 as the servant of the Lord. But there's something that we need to know as well. Israel is also referred to as the servant of the Lord. And even in these chapters we have to really look closely at the context to see is it the Jesus the Messiah who is being referred to or is it the nation of Israel? Now, why are they both called Israel? That seems confusing. Well, you see, God's plan for Israel was that they would be his servant and they would fulfill his purposes and then out from them would come the Messiah. But the nation as Israel, they failed. They never attain to what God intended for them. But there's one among them who does. And so he is the perfect Israelite, if you will. So the Messiah becomes what Israel never was. He becomes what Israel should have been in the sense of what God intended. So again, we'll see in these passages that just, you know, we'll, we'll see the servant passages and then sometimes it'll be clear that it's the Messiah's servant that's being spoken of because of the context. And sometimes it'll also be clear that it, is, it, it has to be Israel that's being referred to. So I doubt that we're going to be able to make it through the entire chapter. But let's just jump in here. But behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, And so now here God is speaking, notice, very tenderly regarding his servant, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, lest you doubt that this is a prophecy about the Messiah, all you have to do is turn to Matthew chapter 12, And you will find that it is indeed a prophet of the Messiah, a prophecy of the Messiah because Matthew quotes it and he applies it to Jesus. He says at a certain point that Jesus did these things and it was a fulfillment of the verses that we're reading right here. So what does God say? He says, He's my elect in whom my soul delights. He says, I put my spirit upon him. And notice he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Whoa, to the Gentiles, wait, he's supposed to be the Messiah of Israel. He's supposed to do all that he does on behalf of Israel. Well, true, but his mission was not limited to Israel. Now, the Jewish people themselves, they, in their history, they forgot this. And they tended to think that they were the ones who were going to exclusively be Delivered by the Messiah, the Messiah was for them and for their cause. And basically the Messiah would just come and judge the the Gentiles. The word Gentile means the nations collectively. So he would come and he would judge the nations, and of course he would be for them. Now that's partially true. But what they forgot is that God loved the, the nations as well. And that all the nations were, they came from God originally that all humanity could be traced back to the garden where the human race began. And it all began with the two people that God created initially. And so God's plan of salvation, it predated the nation of Israel by millennia. And so now uh, the Messiah, his mission is going to be much bigger than simply restoring the nation. He is going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles And notice here, it says, he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax or a smoldering wick he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the islands shall wait for his law. So, wow, there it is, that beautiful prophecy. And like I said, it's good maybe to look over in Matthew 12, not now, but you can do that later, and see the context there where Matthew applies this. But I want you to notice a few things and think about the ministry of Jesus. Verse two, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. You know it's interesting when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus. He came in humility, so he did. He doesn't come in this way where he's demanding that um, I'm here now. Everybody bow down. Everybody worship me with this great shout, with this great roar. Uh, he comes. He comes in humility. He comes very. He's very understated, and so he doesn't really cry out. He doesn't make a, a big pronouncement and and a big commandment he comes and he very humbly begins to minister to people and and when it says a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench it's talking about his compassion on the broken people so a bruised reed is you know think of a reed out maybe in a in a pond you would see a a patch of reeds and sometimes you see a reed that's Uh, bent over slightly. That's the picture. And so what does that say about Jesus? He's he's not going to break it off. He's going to mend it. And a smoldering wick, a smoldering wick, again, is another picture of a life that's just almost snuffed out. But he doesn't come and snuff out the life. He comes and revives the life. And so it's really talking about his compassion toward the broken and the humble and those who have been trampled on and those who are, are desperate. And, and of course, that's what we see about the ministry of Jesus. A lot of it was to those people that were marginalized, those people that much of society, even at that time, had discarded. And, and this has been the way of the Lord throughout the generations. And of course, it doesn't exclude others, but, but these people would naturally be excluded. And so what's being clarified here is that he will not in any way exclude them. As a matter of fact, he's coming for them. He's the champion of the weak. He's the champion of the broken. He's the champion of the poor and the oppressed. Jesus is the only one in history that's ever helped the poor, truly. And you can talk to millions of of poor people in the world today who believe in Jesus And they will tell you that, yes, well, I'm poor, yes, from a material standpoint, but they will also tell you about the riches that they enjoy in Christ. And you can find that all around the world because Jesus is the champion of the poor. And so he's not going to fail or be discouraged. And so there's other passages as we go further into these these 40s of Isaiah. We're going to get to a point where we're going to see a little bit more of this coming out where the task that he comes to perform is discouraging because he's rejected. And in the 49th chapter, I'll just fast forward ahead really quick here, but in the 49th chapter, he will actually express Isaiah through the Spirit, expressing the the sentiments of the Messiah that he has failed in the sense that the, the work that he came to do because of the rejection, there's that sense of feeling like he's failed. And so that's the assurance here is that he will not fail. He will not be discouraged until he establishes justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for him. And now verse 5, this is really good stuff, but we're going to have to blast right through it here. For thus says God the Lord, and and listen to this description of the Lord. This is God, Elohim, Elohim. Yahweh the name speaking who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. You know, some people mistakenly think that Genesis is the only place where uh, the Bible talks about creation or the only claim to creation. You know, there are many people, of course, that uh, utterly reject the idea that God created the world. And there, there are even Christian people who look at Genesis chapters one and two, and say, well, that's probably mythology, and we're not really sure how it all works out. But look, right here in Isaiah, the Lord is claiming that uh, he created the heavens. He stretched them out. He spread forth the earth. He gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. He's claiming to have created all of us. I, the Lord, have called you. Now he's speaking to his servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. So there's two things here that God's saying, I'm gonna give you as a covenant to the people, that's Israel, and as a light to the Gentiles. And so again, this is what Jesus did. You know, my wife is currently teaching Genesis and she's studying the life of Joseph right now and it, there's these amazing parallels in the life of Joseph where uh, Joseph is a he is in so many ways he's a type of Christ but one of the things she was pointing out to me and it, and it really was just beautiful to hear what she was saying she's talking about how how Joseph remember he's rejected by his brothers and 20 years pass between his um being sold into slavery by his brothers and then him encountering his brothers once again but now when he encounters his brothers he is the ruler of Egypt and she was pointing out how and, and there were these dreams that Joseph had had earlier where he he had this dream that the sheaves they were all gathered together and each of the brothers had a sheaf Joseph had a sheaf and the 11 sheaves bowed down to Joseph And then he had another dream that the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him. And his father interpreted that. Jacob said, well, what are you saying? Your mother, your brothers, and I are going to bow down and worship you. So Joseph had had these visions that God had given him that his brothers would worship him. And that's one of the reasons they hated him. And that's one of the reasons why they tried to kill him. And one of the reasons why they would eventually sell him into slavery. But many, many years later, he is the ruler over the Gentiles. And they come... And they bow down before him, who is now the ruler of the Gentile nations. And, and you see the parallels between Joseph and, and much of what happened in the life of Joseph is a picture of what will happen with the Lord Jesus and with the people of Israel in the future. And so here, the Lord says, I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people of Israel, but as a light to the Gentiles To do what? To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So God is telling us about the future, and from that point, he's talking about the Messiah who's going to come. From our standpoint, we're looking back and seeing that he was talking about the Lord Jesus who would come, and again, let me just, I want to close with this. We do have to finish. We'll have to just pick up in the middle of chapter 42 next time, but let me say this, because I began by talking about how important it is to to be able to lay hold of the promises of God for our own lives. And I also mentioned how some people would criticize that. They would say, no, you can't do that. That's taking it out of context. It doesn't apply to you. A, a while ago, there was a conversation on uh, Twitter, of all places, and uh, somebody had posted something about uh, that wonderful promise from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Um, where the Lord speaks and he says I know the thoughts that I have toward you says the Lord thoughts of peace not of evil to give you a future and a hope and somebody had you know put that out on a tweet and they were applying it somewhere where it was encouraging and somebody else came along and said well you know if you understood the context of that you really wouldn't try to apply it to that because it really speaks to Israel and so they were they were sort of insinuating that you know we're not supposed to take that and apply it to ourselves so I don't Engage too often in those kinds of debates because they they are relatively futile. But I decided to weigh in on it, and just to remind them that, well, yes, there is an application that is yet future that it it, it is for uh, the people of Israel and Judah. Um, but there's also a, a place where we can apply it, and and again, in this, of course, on Twitter, you get in all kinds of discussions and disputes but you know so a few people agreed a few people disagreed there was some pushback and so forth but you know this idea so is it true can we take these kinds of promises and can we apply them to ourselves well we can but we have to do it wisely and carefully We can't just apply it generally across the board. We can't say, well, God said this to Israel here, so now what he said to them there is true for the whole church. But we can take it and apply it personally, and we especially can do that when the Holy Spirit really impresses it upon us. And so it's, it's okay. We don't have to be bound to the context. We can be freed from that and here's the point that I want to make to you right now. Right in the very passage that we're looking at, the point that I'm making is proven. He says in verse 6, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, this is clearly a prophetic word about the Messiah. This is a word about Jesus. But guess what? In Acts thirteen forty-seven the Apostle Paul applies it to himself and to his fellow apostles. So so Paul does what I'm saying it's okay to do on occasions. He is taking it out of its original context because it clearly applies to the Messiah, and he's applying it to himself, uh, who was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and, in a sense, fulfilling this passage. So, like we started going back to those great passages, I am the Lord don't be afraid, be not dismayed, I'm with you, I'm going to uphold you with my righteous right hand, all of those wonderful kind of things, um, we want to receive those. When God speaks that to you, lay hold of it and thank him for it and say, Lord, I'm going to stand on this and I'm going to trust you for this. And so that's the word of encouragement that I want to leave you with. These are great and awesome truths And they have a big picture application, yes. And it it applies to God's big story. But they also have an application for us in our generation. Because we, as I said earlier, are the people of God at this time. And this is the word of the Lord to us.
0: The month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nije Gupta. How can we understand some of the most important concepts in the Bible? And how can those concepts make a practical impact on our lives? In his book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, Dr. Nije Gupta traces 15 words through the Bible that make an impact on how we live the Christian life. Words like righteousness, faith, and holiness. You'll learn their Old Testament background, discover their relevance during New Testament times, make connections with other passages in the Bible, and realize their practical impact for living life today. This book will help to bring theology to life. If you want to see how some of the most important theological themes in the Bible can come to life for you, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nije Gupta. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you,